I've called this audio recording a tale of five patients. I'm going to tell you about five geriatric patients and some of the lessons that I personally learned from these, and hopefully you will too. I'm Dan Limmer, Chief Pathologist at Limmer Creative. Here we go. First patient I was called to was an old woman who lived alone. She was probably in her 80s, and she was very proper, and she was very well-dressed, and her house was very well-kept in a nice part of town. We were dispatched because the woman was spitting up blood. So we get to her, and she seems very alert. Skin is pink and warm and dry, and all those things are good signs. Her mental status seemed to be good, but she was very concerned. You could see she was very reserved, and she believed that she had a serious condition. And I introduced myself and asked what was going on. And she said, well, I'm spitting up blood. Now, as a clinical uh, reference here, I think it's important when you have someone who says they're spitting up blood, we want to determine if it's coming from their lungs or if it's coming from their GI tract. That's a pretty important difference there. So as I narrowed it down and she wasn't giving me really great information, she said, you know, I really just see it um, in my, my sputum. I can see it like in a tissue. And I said, all right, do you have a tissue? And she went over and got one. You know, EMS is a glamour job. And she walked over and she got the tissue. And I looked at it and it was pink. Now, I don't mean it was pink like tinged pink, like frothy sputum or some serious thing. It was Pepto-Bismol pink. And that made me think, did you take any Pepto-Bismol? And she said, yes, I did. And I said, well, how long ago? And she said, well, a little while ago. She goes, do you think that's what it is? And I said, well, I'm going to check you over, and I'm going to listen to your lungs. And I asked her lots of questions about her GI tract and many other things, and everything seemed fine. It turns out that what she had was some Pepto-Bismol that had stayed in her mouth and came out, and she believed that she was, as she said, spitting up blood. Now, lessons learned from this are that it's very important to observe around the scene. It's very important to think about the possibilities in differential diagnosis even where it's coming from in the body. Had this been blood coming from the GI tract versus the tracheobronchial tree uh, makes a very big difference. Your observations and sometimes looking at what's the most obvious sometimes works out for you. Second geriatric patient. Now remember, geriatric patients have a lot of medical problems and they can have multiple conditions and sometimes reactions from their medication. We were called to a very similar neighborhood, and a person felt very tired and weak. And the woman's daughter was there. This, this elderly woman lived by herself, but her daughter checked in frequently. And the daughter privately said to us coming in, I'm getting really, really concerned about my mother and how she's going to take care of herself at home. We've been trying to do a lot of things to keep her independence, but she doesn't look good. So I looked at her, and she did seem kind of tired. Her mental status was good, and she was breathing adequately and doing all those things. And she said, I just don't feel well. So I reached down, and I checked her wrist as I was introducing myself, and I felt a relatively slow pulse. So, and I'm talking, you know, high 40s, low 50s. Now, many times geriatric patients have these, you know, 56 beats a minute, 60 beats a minute, incredibly stable pulses, and many times that's because of beta blockers. So I'm feeling her pulse, and it's a little low. And I said, well, what's, what's her medical history, and does she take any medications? And she said, well, yeah, she does take medication. She's on, you know, a tenolol. And I said, well, there's the beta blocker and everything else. So I'm thinking, well, this low pulse, you know, it could be an MI, it could be a lot of things. So I'm asking some questions, and she said, well, she's on these medications, and she's had trouble taking the medications before, so we got her this medication container. 
and it had four compartments for each day and seven days of the week. There were 28 holes in this medication container. And I'm looking at it, and I noticed that the woman had taken the medications rather than going from the top of the container down through the day, through the four components of the day, she took all of the morning medications. So for seven doses, morning, late morning, afternoon, and evening, she had been taking her morning medications because she went across the AM doses rather than straight down, which meant that she had basically begun to overdose herself on beta blockers. So in this case, we were able to figure out what the cause was. And I think what's important here is that many times, uh, it's called polypharmacy, multiple medications, uh, can be a significant part of the patient's problem, whether it be interactions from the medications, whether it be the geriatric patient not being able to metabolize the medications effectively and sometimes having too much in their system, or sometimes these medication errors. I think it's really important that EMS thinks about the role of medications and multiple medical conditions when we approach the geriatric patient. Many times we go in and like an EMT class, the patient has one condition, but the patient may have a viral respiratory infection that really messes up their COPD and exacerbates that. And now that they're really down, their, hypo, their diabetes has made them severely hyper or hypoglycemic because the body's metabolism needs have changed. That we can't go in just looking for one condition. And I think as we look in EMS towards mobile integrated healthcare and many other things, I think it's really important to remember that there's a lot of ways that we can help the geriatric patient and a lot of special things we need to think about. Now, next call, I went to an assisted living facility. This assisted living facility had a place for Alzheimer's patients. And the Alzheimer's uh, unit in this uh, place was always a challenging place to go to because you really had trouble determining the patient's normal mental status. It changed very frequently. It really required us to go to the, to the, to the nurse and say, what's the patient normally like? How are they compared to the normal baseline? So we get a call for, a, for an older gentleman, about 78 years old, with uh, Alzheimer's in bed. And she said, you know, he's normally out of bed and he's not out of bed right now. I'm like, all right. So we checked up, you know, pulse and vitals and we really couldn't get much information from him. And we asked the nurse about what the conditions this patient experienced were. So as we did this and asked about the condition, she said, well, he's on his medications. The medications really haven't changed. You know, we looked through the book and he appears to have been getting them regularly. The only thing that happened is that about a week and a half ago, he had a rib fracture. He fell. So I'm thinking, okay, now a rib fracture and he fell. So that certainly is a potentially relevant thing. Now, because knowing pathophysiology and knowing what goes on, sometimes when a patient has a rib fracture and it's painful, especially when the patient really can't express that pain, you start taking very shallow breaths. Now, in an assisted living facility like this, the patient really didn't ambulate as much as he might have in his younger days, so he started hypoventilating. He was breathing in not as much, not expanding his chest because it hurt because of that rib fracture. When that happened, he developed a pneumonia in that lobe of the lung near the rib fracture. Now, there's a lot of things it could be. It could be a pneumothorax, or it could be an MI or a stroke or a whole bunch of things. But in this case, what happened was it was pneumonia. Now, when you have that condition and the patient has these existing medical problems, it can turn into sepsis relatively quickly. 
And because the patient won't have a raging fever and, you know, crazy signs of shock, especially in the beginning, the early, the early things you find out are changes in mental status. Since that happened, sometimes these things go by the wayside. So we did stroke scales, we checked blood glucose, we went through an altered mental status workup, but we at least knew to check this patient for sepsis. And it turns out that was the cause. Remember sepsis, especially in a patient that's in an assisted living facility or a nursing home. Pneumonia and urinary tract infections are the most common things that kick off sepsis. And it can happen relatively quickly. Remember, you won't have a raging fever many times or a lot of other signs of shock. But because of those two things, uh, sepsis has got to be high on your list of things that you think might be causing a patient's problem. He was about 80 years old, and he was sitting on the edge of his bed, and he struck me as being a little lethargic. And I asked, you know, what the patient's problem was, and she said he had chest pain. And I said, okay, had you done anything for this patient? And the assisted living facility said, yes, we've given him nine nitroglycerin. And I stopped shocked. I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, no wonder this guy's lethargic. I wonder if he has a blood pressure. So I checked his pulse, and sure enough, it was strong and regular, and his skin wasn't bad. And I talked to him, and I said, you know, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Dan from the ambulance, and you know, do you still have pain in your chest? And he said yes, but he just looked like he was really tired. And while my exam is going on, people from, the, from this assisted living facility were all sticking their head in the door and saying, hi, come back soon, we hope you're well. You know, food service workers and nurses and secretaries and everyone stopped when they saw the stretcher outside this man's room. So I said to the nurse, I said, is this, is this man normally really vibrant? I mean, you're talking to this guy like he's the mayor. Oh, we love him. He's always joking, whatever. And I said, so now he doesn't look very good, does he? And, I, and they said, no, he's really not himself. And they said, the doctor said, you know, if the nitro don't work, just put him back in bed. And I said to the nurse, I'm not sure I can do that. I said, it looks to me like he's sick. The nitro that you gave, I mean, assuming they're good, didn't help his chest pain. And he appears to be lethargic. It's somewhat of an altered mental status. Now, I was with a relatively new EMT. And the new EMT says, well, Dan, the doctor said put him to bed. And I said, well, the doctor didn't see the patient. And the doctor didn't give me the order. So... I send a nurse to call the doctor back to see if they get because I this patient needed to be transported because he didn't look good. And sometimes the subtleties, just recognizing that everybody stopped in to talk to this man, but he really wasn't acknowledging them. He could answer my questions, but his head was heavy and he talked kind of slowly. So again, we did stroke scales and diabetes and a lot of other things just to just kind of check and, and see, but it really appeared that chest pain was his complaint. And remember that there are times in, in older patients, they might not have chest pain and fatigue, tiredness, a little shortness of breath is a, is a you know, pretty serious thing. And it may indicate you know, further that they're having the, uh, an MI. So my EMT partner was nervous, and I said to the, the assisted living facility staff, he needs to go. These nitro didn't make him better. He still has chest pain. I really can't leave him here. So I got their approval, and the patient agreed to go. You know, you don't, I don't want to go against the doctor's rule, but boy, this guy was sick. 
So he got him on the stretcher and, you know, sometimes just taking somebody off a of bed, putting them on a stretcher, you know, bouncing them down the hall, bouncing them, you know, as you lift the stretcher. And of course we do it carefully, but it really, compared to living in an assisted living facility, being put in a stretcher and wheeled around and, you know, you put them in the back of the, the ambulance and the wheels come up and you move them in, that creates a certain amount of, of, of jostling. And that picked up his mental status a little bit. It's amazing how just the concept of getting someone out of their chair and into the ambulance often picks up mental status. It's not a not an official treatment, but it's funny how it happens. So I talked to him all the way to the hospital and got down to the hospital and, and did a 12-lead ECG, and it really wasn't a, the smoking gun that said MI, but my gut said, this guy is sick, and it would have been wrong to leave him in bed. So we came back and went on, you know, did our shift, and came back in the next day, and the, the chief for the EMS agency said, hey, the nursing home called. The assisted living facility called. That guy yesterday? And I'm thinking, oh, he had a lot of calls yesterday. I go, oh, yeah. That he was having a heart attack. And they're really happy. And his family is really happy that you brought him to the hospital and didn't leave him in bed. So there, there's a lot of lessons in this. One is the geriatric patients may not have chest pain and often have uh, fatigue or lethargy or shortness of breath, you know, weakness, these things that, that don't say heart attack right off the bat. But when a patient doesn't look good and has these things, especially with chest pain, you know, he needed to go to the hospital. There's a sense that you'll develop when, you out there, when you're out there and you see patients who are ill, patients who look sick. You know, if this guy was walking around joking with everybody, it would have been a whole different story because I think that's what he normally does. But that change in mental status, that fatigue and lethargy was not normal. It was a change. And I think it's very important that we recognize that, especially in our older population, but in anyone, that that's an important sign. And there are times you have to do it. Now, if you're an EMT and you're out there and you say, no, I could never go against a doctor's order. Well, the doctor technically wasn't in my army and he didn't give me the order. And if the patient agrees to go to the hospital and the nursing staff agrees to have the patient go to the hospital, I'm probably okay. We did try and contact the doctor's office. We couldn't reach him before we left. So we took the patient to the hospital. If you're not sure, you contact your medical control. But do the right thing. Do the right thing for your patient. The right thing is always the right thing, and you'll know it when you see it. All right, last one. This one really isn't clinical. It might have been one of my best calls I've been on, and I've had occasional saves, and I've been on, you know, wicked traumas and a lot of other things, but one of my most moving calls was a woman who was about 84 years old, and she had a little chest pain too, and we're taking her to the hospital, and we're going to the hospital, and yeah, I started an IV and did a 12-lead, and you know, maybe gave her a little medication or something. Funny, I don't remember a lot of the clinical parts of this call. But as we're driving to the hospital, she said, you know, I was a nurse. And I said, really? I said, well, how am I doing? You know, and just got a good conversation going. And she goes, oh, I, you know, I worked in, you know, in New York City, and I came up here to be with my kids, and I used to work in the, you know, the hospital, you know, the, the New York hospital. And I said, okay. I said, so what did you do? So, well, I worked, interestingly, in the emergency department for a while, and then I worked in office, and you know, I was in World War II, and I just, and I, hold on, put the brakes on. You were a nurse in World War II. I, I, I said, that's, that's, that's really amazing. And, of course, people in that generation try and play it down. You know, they, they say, well, you know, and I said, what was the hardest thing? I said, you know, I said, you were in New York City, you were a nurse. 
uh, in a hospital. And the next thing you know, you're in World War II. She said, well, the, the, the whole country was very patriotic. And I, I saw a sign on the, on the wall at the hospital. It says, you know, sign up and be a nurse, you know, for the war effort. And you'll stay in the United States for 12 months. What they didn't say is that 12 months and one day you were over in the, in the, in the war. And she happened to be in North Africa. And the thought of this, of this woman, and she was well kept and her clothes were beautiful, you know, I don't know if she was a socialite back then, but I sensed that she, by being a nurse, had to go out and do something. And she may not have had to do that, but she chose to do it. Then she chose to be in the war. And I said, I said, I can't imagine what that must've been like going from New York city to the war. And she says, yeah. So I like to ask questions and talk to people. And sometimes they'll answer. You have to be respectful. I said, what was the hardest thing? I said, pick it up and going out there. I said, you know, the war, I can imagine the casualties and the location. She thought for a minute and she very delicately, she looked around. There's only two of us in the ambulance, but there's certain things she didn't want to say that a lot of people would hear. And I said, the toughest part. And she said, going to the bathroom in the desert. And I think about the, this, this generation and the things that she must have seen, because she did tell me later that she was nursing and taking care of combat troops and things that happened. But when I look back on all the calls I've been on, I consider myself very honored, incredibly just honored to be in her presence and be able to help her and to be able to talk to her and learn a part of our history and make the ride comfortable for her and share that moment that, yeah, I've been an EMS for a long, long time. And when you're young, you want traumas and excitement and, you know, challenges. But you know what? That that was a moment for me. It's something that I will remember forever as one of the best times that I had in EMS. Now, in our five patients we talked about here, the Pepto-Bismol patient, the one who took her meds wrong from the med container, the septic uh, Alzheimer patient, the nine nitroglycerin patient, boy, I never forget that one, and this World War II uh, woman, vet, I realized that there's a lot of things that we can learn from this. I think it's important to look at the differences uh, in the way that the geriatric population experiences things. But I think even more that it's important to remember the things that we can do for them, for their personal comfort, for their clinical needs, and also to help prevention that there are times patients are home and they're not doing well. There's times we make observations that we can either fix something at the house, tell a family member when they meet us at the hospital, or tell the hospital staff to be able to get some help into the home to prevent further medication errors or further injuries. It's our job. Sometimes we're the only ones that see the scene, the only ones that can figure out the cause. And I believe it's so, so important for us to do that. So I hope that you enjoyed these this tale of five patients, I'm Dan Lemmer.